This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Tonight's program, um, as for many of our programs, focuses on how technology is used or applied, but also in some ways on the process of research itself. We're interested in both because there are ethical dimensions of both those aspects of, of what we do. As you, I hope, can all appreciate, in the early stages of research, when you're still developing something and don't yet know whether it works as you intended and you're still refining it and learning about the technology you're working on, it can be one of the most challenging times ethically because you're moving in a direction where you will know what you're getting but you aren't there yet. So what do you do with uncertain, sometimes highly uncertain information? Um, How should we approach handling, for example, tentative findings from research that is not yet finalized, not yet really ready for, example, clinical application? Imaging studies where you look at, where you try and see in various ways what's going going on inside the human body are a really good example of that. You can't tell what's in someone's brain or their heart or their liver, definitely, unless you cut them open and look at it. But that's not the ideal option for most of us. Um, you might have to get to that stage for some things, but not always. So tonight we have one of the leading researchers in this domain, uh, Dr. Catherine Fowler, Katie Fowler, as uh, a professor in radiology at UC San Diego. And she and some of her colleagues have been wrestling with just that question as they develop a new technology. What should they do when they see something with a patient who is a subject in their study. And so she'll talk about that and other issues, and uh, we should have an interesting discussion tonight. So thank you. All right, so thank you for the wonderful introduction and the opportunity to to speak to you all. I'm glad that you're here tonight uh, for this. So just by way of introduction, I am a physician, a radiologist, um, and a radiologist is someone who interprets diagnostic imaging. So there are lots of different kinds of diagnostic imaging, uh, MRI, CT, ultrasound, so we kind of interpret all of them. Uh, And that's what we do clinically. So if you get a CT scan or an MRI scan, we're the ones that provide the read um, that your surgeon or that your doctor is going to use to help treat you. In terms of disclosures related to this talk, I don't have any disclosures. Uh, and, you know, the question tonight, the question that I was asked uh, is, if researchers find a tumor, should they tell you? You being the participant in a research study. By a raise of hand, how many of you have participated in a research study? Okay. How many of you have participated in an imaging research study? Okay. Fewer, but... So those of you who have participated, you understand that we typically give you what's called informed consent. We go through the process with you. We tell you what we're going to do. And part of that process, they might say that you're not going to be able to know the results of the test, right? Because it's still a research test. So we're going to talk a little bit about what that means. So as I mentioned, we have a lot of imaging that we do. So this is an ultrasound examination. We can scan through in real time and see the liver, see the kidneys, see multiple things. Here's a CT Uh, a CAT scan of the abdomen. This is the liver. Here's an MRI. You can see here there's a large lesion within the liver. And then here's a radiograph where the patient has taken some oral contrast and we can see the small bowel and the colon. So these are all the tests that we use clinically. And we are fairly 
confident in the results of these, but we haven't always been confident. These also had to be tested and proven before they became part of common clinical practice. So I want to walk through a little bit with you, how do we do that? How do we get a test from the experimental phase to the point where we're going to be doing it on a patient and using that information to treat their disease? So things that we're looking for, we really want the test to be accurate. But if we take a little bit of a deeper dive and we talk about what does accuracy really mean, well, it means that you're right, right? You know, we want it to be correct. We want it to be right. But there's a couple pieces of that. There's something called sensitivity, which really is that we want to identify everyone out there with the disease. So if we have a test for liver cancer and we do this test on all of you, we don't want to miss anybody in this group that has liver cancer. We don't want to have any false negatives. We also have to think about specificity. Specificity means that we don't want any false positives, so we don't want it to pick up anyone in the group that doesn't have cancer and tell us that they have cancer, right? No one wants a false positive. So we're trying to balance sensitivity and specificity. And there's also this little thing called repeatability. So that means if I do this test on you today and I get an answer for each and every one of you, and then assuming nothing has changed, I do this test on you 15 minutes from now, one day from now, do I get the same answer for each of you or not? So that's kind of repeatability or reproducibility. Basically, how reliable is this test? Is it going to give me the same answer every time that I administer it? So I somewhat alluded to this, that we're trying, it's always a balance. We would love it if every test were 100% sensitive and 100% specific. It's right every time. It's never wrong. That would be a perfect test. Unfortunately, I can't think of a single test out there that we do that is perfect. So we do end up having to balance sensitivity against specificity. So what exactly does that mean, and why do these two sort of counter each other? Why can't they both go in the same direction? So I want to introduce the concept of the ROC curve. How many here have ever heard of this? Okay, everyone from my lab had better raise their hands. <laughs> so one way that we can measure and compare different tests is to do something called an ROC curve analysis. And the history of the ROC is somewhat interesting. It's a receiver operator characteristic. So what's a receiver operator? That was actually a person who was listening to radar in World War II and trying to determine if the ping on the radar represents a Japanese submarine or not. Is it a false positive? Is it a true positive? That's the history behind this metric that we use in diagnostic imaging. After World War II, it was picked up in psychology and used for testing, and then it's been increasingly used in medical imaging and increasingly used in all of medicine for testing the accuracy and comparing the accuracy of different diagnostic tests that we have. So when we plot this, we look at what the true positives are. This is the same as sensitivity. So the true positives, and we look at the false positives. This is kind of the inverse, or one minus specificity. And pretty much, if you had a perfect test, your dot would be way up here, okay? And if you drew a line from here to here, that would basically be the flip of a coin. 50% of the time, the test is right. 50% of the time, the test is wrong. So you may as well not do the test. You might as well flip a coin. So anything that the ROC curve is this line that we have here, Anything that ends up above or pretty far below that flip of the coin is actually a pretty good test, right? Because if it's way down here, we can just say, well, you know, maybe we got it 
wrong. Maybe we just need to flip what we're thinking. So this would be a relatively okay test. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this as we move forward. But I just want to introduce the concept. We're not going to go into any heavy statistics tonight. So how accurate does an imaging test need to be? What about a screening and surveillance test? How accurate should that be? Well, we don't necessarily need it to be highly specific if we're going to screen the population. So what is a screening test? For instance, a mammogram. We want to give everyone who's above a certain age, depending on what country you live in, it's 40 or 50, uh, we want to screen them for breast cancer, every female in the room. So do we want to miss any cancers? No. We really want to have high sensitivity. We want to detect all cancers. So if you're going to screen a population, you really want to have a highly sensitive test, and you're going to be okay with some false positives. You know, we're going to be okay if we call you back and we investigate it further and turns out it's okay, it's a nothing, but better safe than sorry. What about a test such as liver MRI? Now this might sound like a hypothetical situation, but it's actually not. So we are able with MRI and CT to tell a person if they have liver cancer. We don't need to biopsy that. And this patient, if they have liver cancer, could potentially get a liver transplantation. Other sicker patients who don't have liver cancer may not get that liver transplantation because we only have a limited number of organs out there. And we have a lot of people with liver failure. So we have to have some way to distribute those livers in a way that is equitable. So we do give priority for some patients that have cancer. So if we detect a cancer and that patient then moves way up the priority list, gets their liver tomorrow, bypassing all of these other people without cancer. So tests like that, would we want that to be highly sensitive or highly specific, assuming you can't have both? I would want that test to be highly specific. I don't want anyone who doesn't have cancer to bypass other people who are going to die waiting for their liver and to falsely allocate that organ. So we really don't want false positives in that scenario. So that test needs to be very specific. How about tomorrow you go to the doctor and you find out that you have cancer? Probably going to happen to most of us at some point in time. And they want to do an imaging test to tell you how bad is it, how far is it spread. You want that to be highly sensitive or highly specific? This is a scenario where you kind of want to have a balance of both. You want it to give the maximal sensitivity and specificity that it can. And that's where we can go back to our ROC curve and we can say, based on what's called a Uden's index, we can pick the spot where we have the highest value for both sensitivity and specificity. And that's going to be the test that we want. We want the most accurate test. So now that we've introduced a couple of these statistical concepts, I want to talk a little bit about how we do a research project. And this is pretty much a very basic outline. We have a new test. In this case tonight, we're talking about an imaging test. We maybe have an old test or a test that's standardly used all the time. So maybe we want to compare it to a CT because we know that CT works fairly well. And then we have to compare it against, because if we're going to have two tests that give us each answers, we have to have a truth. Right? We have to have a reference standard to know which test is performing better, which is actually giving us the right answer more often. So we need what's called a reference standard. Oftentimes, this is a picture of a liver that's been resected with a big tumor. Oftentimes, that reference standard is going to be pathology. That is what we really want. That's what would 
we would consider the gold standard, right? That's where they cut you open, they take a piece of it, they look under the microscope. There's no higher truth than that, for the most part, in medicine. If we can't get that, we might say, well, we can just kind of take a, a composite of what's going on with you clinically. If whatever this was hasn't killed you two years later, it's probably okay, and so we'll call that negative or benign. If whatever this is has gotten bigger uh, or spread, then probably that was a cancer. So we can use other metrics, but these are less, um, less sure, right? So now I want to present to you, this is in fact a hypothetical study. We do a lot of studies at UCSD, um, but this is not a specific one that we're doing right now. It's just kind of an example to help us walk through this scenario. So we are putting up flyers, we are talking to clinicians, and we are trying to recruit you for our new research study. We think that our new MRI method will detect more cancer than the existing tests that are out there. So forget about your old CT, forget about whatever MR you had yesterday. This new method, we think, is the next greatest thing. So we're going to compare to the old method. Maybe it's an MR or CT. It's whatever you've had done in the past, whatever the clinicians may have ordered on you before. And we're going to pick some form of a reference standard. So if we're talking about a liver cancer, we're going to say, okay, we're going to compare to pathology. You know, maybe that means that you need a biopsy. Maybe that means that you have surgery done. Whatever it is, we're going to pick a reference standard. And we also, before we start on any project, we sit down with our statisticians. Now, I am not a statistician, but we sit down with our experts in this field and we talk about a power analysis. How many patients do we need to, to image, assuming this test we can guess performs about this well, and this test we think performs about that well, to be able to tell a difference between the two? How many patients do we need to enroll to get to that point? Because we have to prove that they're not just different by numbers, but that they're statistically significantly different. So that by chance alone, the difference we're observing, or the difference we're observing is not due to chance alone. Okay, so we have to actually have a lot of planned out in advance. So if we stop halfway through the study, we're not gonna have the power to show statistical difference between these two modalities. Or if we fail to recruit enough patients, we may not be able to prove our hypothesis. So we have been successful. We've recruited a 50-year-old woman, and she has pancreatic cancer, and she is, in fact, scheduled for surgery soon. The, the tests that she's had done in the clinic showed no metastatic disease, so she's a good candidate for surgery, and she's going to proceed. But she says, you know, I come to the hospital so frequently anyway, and, you know, I may as well help the cause, right? I might as well contribute to science, so I'm going to enroll in this study. So she's going to participate, and the doctor is going to order the standard imaging. We're going to compare against it. She understands, because she signed the informed consent, that the results of our new test will not impact her care. We aren't going to share her results in the medical file. The results, because they're research only, are going to stay with us. So her physician may not know, and she won't know. Well, her imaging test came back positive. Now, we're supposed to enroll 100 patients. She's our first. We see this dark spot. I've highlighted it with an arrow. And this is something in the liver. And her standard imaging showed nothing. So we think it's potentially cancer, right? Because we think that our method is better than the standard imaging. So we do have that scenario. Maybe our test is right. 
perhaps this is cancer. And what does that mean for her? Well, that means that if she has metastatic disease, there's no point in her having a surgery for her pancreas cancer. She really just needs chemotherapy. That surgery might remove that that pancreas cancer, but if the tumor's already spread, it's not going to prolong her life. It's not going to help her out in any way, really. It's what we would call a futile procedure. Well, here's another scenario. Maybe the test is wrong. Maybe this dark spot in the liver is, in fact, a false positive. Maybe it's a benign lesion that we just didn't see on the regular CT. And really the truth is that she should have that surgery because this will be life-saving, life-prolonging to get this cancer out. She has no spread of disease anywhere else. So we decide to tell her the results of the test. And she says, well, I'd like a biopsy. I want to find out for sure. And that sounds reasonable to me. Well, the biopsy is not without risk. The biopsy, even though we just stick it through the skin, it's a sharp needle, and there are things that are in the skin, things in the liver called blood vessels. They bleed, potentially. So now her liver doesn't look so normal. She's got a big hematoma, a big area where she's bled. right? And so now, because of this big bleed, she ends up passing away. And the results of this study... It's a benign lesion. This is all hypothetical. I'm making this up. (laughs) But I want you to experience this because I want you to think about this. What are the possible repercussions of this test being wrong and us sharing the answers? And that's, that's really what we're here to talk about tonight are kind of the ethics behind this, the dilemma that we oftentimes face in research projects, in medical imaging. And we have to think about, as a physician, we first want to do no harm. So we really don't want to do a test that the patient doesn't need. We don't want to do a surgery that the patient doesn't need. So there are extra risks to proving something. Even minimal things, like getting a CT exam. What if you have an allergy to the contrast? What if you have anaphylaxis and your airway closes? There are risks to everything that we do. Um, Also, just the risk of anxiety. Just the knowledge that there could be something and the fear and the worry that people have to face when that happens. And of course, there's the big risk of making the wrong decision about the treatment and having a negative outcome as a result of that. The flip side is that perhaps the consequences could be good. You know, maybe by telling her, you know, we end up doing the right thing. Perhaps the test was right. We also have to think about what are the consequences to the research. The research, oftentimes we do what's called intention to treat, So we don't want to alter the patient's management based on a research test because then we don't know if the outcome is based on what they had or it's been altered by what we've done to them. So we really want to have what's called intention to treat where they go on and have the outcome that they would have had irrespective of the research test. So the consequences to the research are that if it were a therapeutic trial and the patient's on a placebo versus a real drug, if we unblind them that can have an impact on how they may respond to the treatment. The outcomes can be changed if they decide to do something based on the test. And of course, we are held accountable. Um, The University of California and all universities where they perform research are held accountable. um, Human subjects rights and what we call an IRB. And we have to submit protocols and we are held accountable to stick to the protocols. If we deviate from the protocols, that could result potentially in the project being shut down. So all the patients who have come before this patient have 
sacrificed for nothing. There's no result that can happen at that point. And of course, there's the risk that we continue, but because of tampering with what we're doing, that we can't prove or disprove our hypothesis. So with that, I'm going to, I think, transition at this point. I'm going to start with a a question that occurred to me as um, I just thought about the ethical questions that are here. Um, You... You've, you've even mentioned you know, the idea that these studies have to be accepted in the university setting and so on, and, and that's handled by the Institutional Review Board. So the question is, to what extent have institutional review boards anticipated, as you're doing studies like this, there's a risk that you're going to see something that's problematic in your research study. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, so we do have to have a plan in place for how we handle incidental findings, And, you know, the imaging that's performed for various different reasons. So maybe we're studying your liver, um, but there's something in your bone. There's something, you know, outside of the liver. We have to have a plan in place that someone will review the imaging for these kinds of findings. And if we know them to be significant, um, if it's clear to us that these are potentially something that you need intervention, then we will notify a clinician. Um, You know, if you end up having... Uh, an aortic dissection or something that's potentially deadly, that will get transferred um, to, you know, the ordering physician potentially. And, yeah, you have to have a plan in place basically to address this. Yeah, so they are anticipating that. How deeply do they delve into this? Because I can imagine, depending on what you see, depending on the circumstances of a particular patient, that um, there are more, there are larger or smaller reasons about why you would want to do something about it. I would say they don't go very deep into this. Um, you know, we as, when we're doing imaging studies, they kind of classify different studies based on what they perceive to be the risk. Imaging studies are, are classified for the most part as a minimal risk um, to the patient because we're not cutting a patient, we're not giving a medication, we're just taking pictures. Um, so that is classified as what the IRB would consider minimal risk. Um, They worry probably more these days about the potential threat of um, jeopardizing confidentiality, that somehow the results will be shared outside of where they should be shared. Um, So that is one of the the greatest risks that the IRB tends to worry about. Yeah, so as I'm thinking about this, it seems to me that the the questions are not just going to vary based on the, the circumstances, but they're going to vary based on what the individual would want. So does the IRB or do you and your plans adjust what you're going to do based on individual preferences about whether they would want to know something? I have in, been involved in studies where we have allowed the option for the imaging study to be interpreted and put into the medical record, and that's based on the patient's desire for that to happen. We can do that, uh, and that's an option. But beyond that, the protocols tend not to be very adaptive based on, on the patient's preference. So um, what are your thoughts on, on trying to, how difficult would it be to design your studies so you somehow include as part of the informed consent process um, options that people can choose depending on what you see? Or would that be something that would cause people to not want to be in your study because they'd worry about what's going to happen? How would, <laughs> well, would we try not to hide any risks. Okay. <laughs> So we don't try to, you know, pull the rug over any, any potential issues like this. Uh, the informed consent sometimes, I think, is, is too in-depth because you get handed a packet that's 10 pages or 20 pages long, and how well can you really read that? And how well can you really understand that? Uh, and who's going to take the time? 
right? You're in kind of a hurry. Uh, maybe you've had to find parking at UCSD before. If you, anyone has ever attempted that, you're already in a hurry when you show up. So I think it would be challenging to have too many questions in the IRB in the consent form um, to address in advance. Yeah, so, so what that means is that if we're designing a system, we need to design, in a sense, a one-size-fits-all because we have to come up with a standard approach. If we're going to do that, what is your sense? I mean, from I don't know how much of an opportunity you've had to ask this question or think about it with individuals, but do most people want to know whatever you find or most would rather not know because you don't know the significance of it? It is highly variable. Uh, you know, it depends. If you're studying a population of patients who are going or being evaluated for liver transplantation, it's a very anxiety-provoking process for them, and they don't want anything that's going to potentially jeopardize their chances of getting a transplant. So for them, they may not want to know, but they're also very um, thankful for the system, and they're oftentimes very good participants in research. So this is a group that may not want to know. Uh, you might have a different scenario, you know, patients that might want a whole-body MRI as part of a research protocol, um, patients who might be willing to pay out of pocket for additional imaging, uh, people who are very up-to-date on the medical field, very up-to-date on genetics. They may want to know a lot. Uh, it just really depends on the patient, I think. Yeah. So, um, so we've got an audience here that is very up-to-date on things, I'm, I'm guessing. So how many of you would want to know if uh, Dr. Fowler was doing an imaging research study on you and she saw something that, that is abnormal, but she does not yet have proof that it actually is something that's problematic? How many of you would want to know? Okay, um, just out of interest, is there anybody who would not want to know? <laughs> Okay, just a very few people. I, I don't know whether they know something the rest of us don't know. Or, so that, but if um, you've done this, um, and there, there are a lot of people involved in the studies, so if one of the members of your team um, lets on in the process of capturing the image, oh, I saw something unusual, or who's, who's responsible for making sure this is done right? Is this ultimately just, it's your fault because you didn't train them well enough, or who is responsible for it? Well, technically the PI is responsible for every aspect of the study, mm-hmm. um, but we do do extensive training. Uh, we have people here tonight actually from our lab who put together some of the training manuals who ensure um, that our technologists are trained in this way. So we really go to every length possible to make sure that everyone understands the protocol, Everyone understands what their role is and what their responsibilities are, both to the study and the patient. Okay, great. So um, we have a, um, a vote. I, I did not know Becca was going to do it this well for us. She's actually tallied the votes. Um, thank you. Um, so, and this looks like the people who raised their hands. No, seven actually were explicit that they did not want to know. Um, and so we have a little bit of information on that. Um, just simply, I would prefer not to be notified. And somebody, um, and we will not identify the individual because they are almost as old as me. Um, uh, so um, I don't want to be told at 75. So there's, basically this is a factor that one could imagine. Somebody would say there's a point at which, for whatever reason, I don't need to know more, either because of other illness that I'm dealing with or um, otherwise. Um, so this, 
this raises a question. Some years ago, I was uh, working on a study that had to do with looking at um, genetic variants people might have. And um, genes, as you know, if, if the best information we have on most genes is that it's, it's not anywhere near certain. It's not the 100% you talked about for gold standard. Most it's going to be probabilistic. There is an increased risk that you will have X because you have this gene variant. And so the, as we started thinking about why people would want to know or not want to know, there were a number of factors that played in. So um, do you have a kind of a, a set of factors in your head that are pretty clear, that are relevant, that people would, would trade off? I mean, one might be your age, but are there other factors that... Well, I think a main factor that, that I personally think about is, is there something you can do about it? Um, so one of the major things we look at nowadays in terms of genetics, one of the big hot topics in research for imaging, which I don't do because I focus on the liver and the body, uh, but that my neuro colleagues do, is Alzheimer's disease. So much is focused on the early detection or the prediction uh, potentially for Alzheimer's disease. But the question is, if you know at the age of 30 that you're going to develop <coughs> Alzheimer's disease, what can you do about it? Is there anything you can do now to prevent that from happening later? Or let's say you're going to get it next year, and is there a treatment? Is there anything that we can do to make you better? Uh, unfortunately, uh, there's not that much to do for that particular scenario. So I don't know if I would personally want to know for 30 or 40 years that I'm going to have this happen to me. Uh, I think another one is Huntington's disease, a very common genetic disorder that you, do you want to know that you're going to be um, not having a normal lifespan, that your children are all, I mean, maybe you do want to know if you're going to have children, whether you're going to be able to pass that on to them. I think that's an important concept with genetics, but I think the ability to do something about it, to intervene, to fix the problem, to me would be a big factor in whether or not I would want to know uh, that it's happening or that it's there. Yeah, so um, any thoughts on the relative importance of the likelihood of pain or suffering based on what they have as opposed to something that might not be as significant? I think that gets to be a little bit harder when you're talking about something as non-specific as possibly cancer, for example. Mm -hmm. but, um, well, I think that if you told me, well, this could be cancer, and if we take it out today, you'll live another 50 years, but it's going to hurt a lot. I'd rather have it hurt a lot and get rid of it. Um, so I think the pain and suffering is, again, kind of within the context of the futility or non-futility of the procedure. Will it fix the problem or not? Um, I'm willing to potentially try to, I mean, think about what women go through every year with mammograms the false positive rate is actually quite high. There are a lot of callbacks. Uh, and I think women are willing to do that. They're willing to undergo biopsies. They're willing to undergo additional testing because they really would like to detect that cancer early if possible. Yeah, so I mean, your, your answer is, is a reminder that there's just so many ways that people will deal with this differently. You know, it might be interesting to get a poll from the audience. How many of you would, if I understood your answer correctly, how many of you would be up for 50 years more of life. You're fairly young, 50 more years of life, but pain and suffering for that period of time. Um, so some, I, you know, some people you know, might say, absolutely, I, mean, I want to be around, and, and even if I'm going to have to be suffering, I can deal with that. Um, some people would say, you know, it's, the, you know, it's not just the quantity of life, but I want to, if I don't have that quality. And you might make that answer differently if if you're um, 75 or 80 years old now, and for how many more years do you have than if you're 15 years old? Um, and then we could ask the question of whether somebody who's 15 years old is in a position 
to make a good judgment about that. Um, to what extent have you in your, in, in your plans um, ever included the idea that, yes, we will let people know, but it has to be handled through their physicians? They would let you know in advance their physician's name, and you give it to their physician. Yeah, that actually often is the case, um, because as a radiologist, we tend to be kind of behind the curtain. Uh, you guys don't see us. You see your physician, and then maybe they hand you a report, or maybe you go into my chart and you see a report, but you know you don't always meet us. Um, so I think sometimes it's better coming from someone who knows you, that knows the clinical context, that can speak to what it means for you uh, when there's a finding, because it may mean something very different depending on your context. And, and I'm not in a position as a radiologist kind of behind the scenes to know all of that context that plays into each individual case. But is everything you just said true of the research studies? Because I was presuming if it's a research study, it's you that's actually it's, working it's with the individual. It's variable. Um, sometimes it is us directly. Uh, other times we have clinical collaborators, and so we have a clinician who's recruiting patients from their clinic, and so then we would kind of defer to them to reach out to the patient. Okay. So then in that case, if you found something, you would... In, in, and for whatever reason you decided automatically or because the patient subject had said they want this information, you would give it to the clinical collaborator that was providing. Okay, good, thanks. So we have a few questions. <laughs> well, first of all, Michael, I was going to say that our sample size here, and we have a biased, uh, perhaps more educated group, so that's going to influence the answers to your questions. Um, I had a recent uh, situation in which In my chart at UCSD, I had gone in for a routine CT because I'm a cancer survivor, and it came out where the radiologist had written probable metastasis. And it was at Christmas time, and my oncologist was out of town, and it had an emotional uh, upheaval because I was concerned that there was no one there to talk to me about the result. And so I think this is not just an exclusive thing for research. Some of us are old enough that we remember when we did studies, they didn't have ethics committees, and things were done a little more seat of the pants. But we've evolved, perhaps because of the legalities, that we have a packet of disclosures now. But you mentioned, first, physician do no harm. And to me, this is personal, it is doing harm if there is information out there and it is withheld from the patient or the subject, the research subject. So for them to have the choice made to them that if information comes out, even if it is perhaps inaccurate, what do we want to do with that information? If someone else, including the researcher, makes the decision for me, to withhold that information, then I feel that's an ethical violation. And that's what I thought was the the purpose, even if it was driven by lawsuits, the purpose in having these disclosures was to give more choice to the subject and less the person in the leather chair that makes the decisions and give it back to us as a decision. So I'd like to have your comments on that. I don't think it's an all or nothing thing. And I think this concept of choice goes beyond just the research 
goes into what do you do with information and how do you disseminate that information that's done even in a non-research situation. Uh, so, I mean, if, uh, there's just to be clear, there's two distinct categories here which I think are really important. One is the clinical, and maybe you can talk about that because my presumption is that in many clinical settings they would not allow the patient to see right away the results without especially if there was something as dramatic but as my possible metastasis, that, that, that you would have somebody intervening first. That's the first thing. And then in the research setting, um, what is your thought on that feeling that it's unethical for you to withhold seeing something that doesn't look right in a yeah. research study? So um, I'll talk about the research one first because I think it's a little less controversial, maybe. <laughs> uh, but we have to think about how do we generate evidence and how do we... Um, how do we grade that evidence? And what is the strongest level of evidence that we have that something is good or better than something else? And we tend to think that a randomized controlled trial, double-blind, is our best level of evidence. And double-blind, what does that mean? That means that the patient doesn't know if they're getting the treatment or not, and the physician doesn't know if they're getting the treatment or not. So the precedent for withholding information for research is firmly established. I'm not saying it's right, but it's firmly established within the construct that we work. Uh, and the radiology piece of it, I showed you some examples that were pretty clear-cut. If I saw a mass like that in someone's liver, I think I would be fairly certain that it's a real finding. Still could have been benign, but that it's a real finding. Sometimes the results are very uncertain. They're not necessarily a binary outcome. It's kind of this continuous variable. And maybe we say, well, above 70%, it's positive. Well, what if your test comes back at 68? You know, we don't know what that means. So I think giving you information but not having the ability to counsel about what it means or having the ability to direct you appropriately can cause more harm potentially. So I do think it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, so that's my response to that. And then the part about my chart... <laughs> We share frustration, the clinicians do, uh, especially the radiologists, because we don't know necessarily. We, don't get, we get information from the chart, um, but we don't get all the information. We don't get all the notes from the oncologist. We don't get all the notes to say exactly when your last cycle of chemo was, what you had done between this date and that date. So sometimes the results that we give, we can say bigger, smaller, new, uh, and then we can say, well, we were concerned that because this is new or because this is bigger, that this may represent spread of the cancer or worsening of the cancer. Um, but there are also other factors. You know, Some medications cause tumor to bulge and to kind of swell, and that can look like progression, and it's not. So things like that, when you go in and you are in the context of the, the oncologist or whoever's treating you, they can take that information and really give it to you in a way that makes the most sense for, for each individual situation. So having that information out there, having access to a bunch of labs, uh, and you know every lab is flagged as normal or critical or you know abnormal, and even my labs, I look at them, I'm like, that's a point point one above the normal range. What does this, you know? I recognize it's basically normal, but you know it's flagged in red, and that can cause a lot of anxiety. So not having that context and that background, understand all of the information, I think, can be detrimental to patients and can cause a lot of anxiety, and especially. We also share uh, the frustration with being able to reach the other physicians. <laughs> when we have findings and we have to call and say that we see something, it can take an hour or more or even a day to get someone on the phone to be able to notify them that this imaging study was done, this finding is here, this patient needs to be seen by you. 
um, or this patient needs to go somewhere. And sometimes we do actually have to reach out directly to the patient too, just to let them know to go to the emergency room or you know to make sure they get treated. Yeah, just a quick follow-up because as part of this, it gets back to this question of false positives and false negatives. And as you described, it's it's there is probably no test that's going to be perfect on both of those. And what this what this means in reality is that if you really didn't want to have any mistakes about somebody falsely seeing something that's positive, there's an easy way to guarantee that, and that's to never say anything is positive. That's just doesn't matter what the test says. You never say. And conversely, if you want to make sure you have no false negatives, you can never say that it isn't positive. You just always say it's true, so you won't have any false negatives. But that isn't realistic. And what you're left with is so much of life and so much of what you look at is not going to be black and white. So on the one hand, you can say, I want to know what you found, but what did you really find when, you know, what if it's just a little bit more opacity or something in the the image? At what point do you even say, I think this is abnormal? You have to make a judgment. Where's, Where's that line it's, yeah, it's, it's for us. It's all about communicating degrees of uncertainty and probabilities. And we have devised an actual classification system for liver cancer. I'm not going to plug it too much here, but um, that is an ordinal scale from a one to a five. Five being it is a cancer. One being it's definitely benign. So we're trying to get more granular and more objective about giving probabilities, uh, because if you look at the language that we've used historically, concerning for, compatible with might be. Uh, these are very subjective uh, terms that are open to interpretation. So, right. But just to be clear, those number, that numbering system is um, using tests that have been validated and are accepted yes. as opposed to a research study using a new imaging technique where you don't yet know what that mm-hmm. thing means. So, yeah. okay, good. Thanks. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to comment on, I'm one of the people that's answered no uh, but it wasn't because I was uh, fearful or state of mind. It's really how strongly do you believe in science and statistics in the development of medical science going forward? I mean, two good examples have already been referred to. One, there's a strong recommendation to discontinue PSA testing after a certain age, and the reason is it doesn't do anything to extend life. There was another massive study that showed that mammography scanning for people below 50 doesn't extend life. People, I think, are maybe not as uh, accepting of scientific reality. And I think, I think that's an important factor. You know, going forward, we need to use more science. Uh, and, and I think a, a data point out of a research study is, is a in my opinion, a dangerous thing to rely on. You don't want to start down that road. I mean, we're in a position where we could have scientifically rigorous medicine, and I think that's a better option. I have a question, too, though. Is what you're doing in any way related there? I just heard about a controversy about liver biopsies at the VA here. Oh, no. <laughs> That's a she is not responsible for it. No, no. Any of it. Was, I mean, what, what, what was driving that? Was that a, a researcher or something? Do you know about it? I don't know about that okay. personally, um, but it sounds like it's very interesting. Uh, maybe I should read up on that. But, yeah, no, we, um, we at UCSD, we're not really – the VA is next to us, but um, they are separate from us. 
Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's an ethical question, but a very different one than we're covering tonight. So, Stephanie? Uh, I can understand the um, random double-blind studies, uh, particularly uh, with regard to investigating new treatments. Um, I would, would like you to talk a little bit more, though, about in particular imaging studies, when would it be good not to involve the patient in their own care? That is, if there's not a reason not to put an option for the patient to know, to choose whether or not they want to know about the results, that very first step, what would that look like and why might you do that and why might you withhold that from the patient? That's something that I'm wrestling with right now. Yeah, I think it's a really, a really good question. Um, and I don't necessarily have the perfect answer for this, but uh, I think if you're just really uncertain about the imaging tests that you're doing and you're just not sure that it's better than what they've already had done, that potentially you could be subjecting them to excessive biopsy, excessive worry and anxiety, and it may all be for nothing. So I think if you're fairly uncertain, it's, it's hard when we show images, and I think um, the imaging studies we do have gotten so good that it ends up being a little bit more of a black and white question, less of a gray question. Um, but I think it's easier to comprehend in the context of lab results that are more of a continuous variable, a number that's on a sheet, and where do you fall on that number. So yeah, I would say that most of the time, we do have the option for the patients to see the imaging. Um, and the instances where we don't uh, you know, would primarily be because they're also enrolled in a therapeutic arm, uh, and you know, it's it's an imaging test that's being done kind of as part of a larger. So it's in conflict right. with the therapeutic, randomized blind double blind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the, I, there's the worry that um, you by bl- unblinding this in effect for the patient in some way, that you might cause a change in what's done, um, but then you in theory, have this possible trade-off in a research study where you're doing that, where you might not, as you described, might not be telling somebody something that would be helpful to them mm-hmm. that might change their care. Now, I do want to clarify, though. Um, every research study that we do, if we see an incidental finding on the research study, we do notify the patients. So we will tell you if we see a kidney cancer, but we're doing it for the liver. Um, usually the results that we would withhold as a purpose of that would be something that relates to the specific question that we're asking about the test and the specific organ of interest potentially. So, that, That's an important distinction. Okay, good. Thanks. Yeah. I think you indicated that it's a dilemma for the radiologist whether to inform the subject, the patient. Why not ask the patient before the study whether he or she would like to be notified if you find something, and then when you do find something, give them also the most likely probability of the accuracy of it, and then the patient, the radiologist, and the patient's physician can then make an informed decision how to proceed from there, maybe repeat the test six months hence or a year or whatever. Yeah, I think that's a very, very reasonable suggestion. And the idea of adding that to the consent form would make a lot of sense. Um, We recently had a case, this is a real thing, not a hypothetical, of um, someone who came in and we did see a spot in the liver, uh, but the test was being done for something totally different. And, you know, it's so small. uh, And the next steps, this person had a lot of allergies, so we couldn't give contrast, so we couldn't further work it up with that. So the next steps were unclear, so we did sit down 
and discuss with the clinician who had a conversation with the patient and came up with a plan, basically, to address that. Um, so I'd say more often than not, we do notify people uh, unless it's expressly prohibited based on the study design for other reasons. It seems uh, clearly in the interest of researchers to have a double-blind uh, study uh, because uh, if you start to, this is why you do have those uh, uh, agreements by the patient to uh, uh, to uh, just not know the results. Uh, if you keep going in t- for the results and notifying patients, it de- definitely muddies up the results. On the other hand, most people do want to know what's going on, and if necessary, they would want treatment, even if it was a, uh, a, uh, a small chance that intervention would be of uh, any help. Uh, now, so there is that uh, gap. It's like a conflict between the patient and the researcher. And the only way, I think, would be if you have very specific criteria under what circumstances you would intervene and muddy up that research. And one of the worst things, I think, would be if the researcher has uh, sort of like an option, uh, 68%, as you said, versus 70, 72. Uh, There's got uh, to be a middle ground, but that middle ground has to be clearly delineated. Yeah, and it's a little clearer when you talk about therapeutic trials. They do have interim analyses, and then they have stop points if it's showing that it's working or not working. Um, So it's a little different than with the imaging studies, but but I think that you bring uh, very, very valid points. Yeah, so there's been a fair bit of conversation, and maybe a lot of the audience is advocating for saying, well, it's information, and I want the information, whatever information you have. And I want to just push back on that a little bit because um, for two reasons. One is that, as we've discussed already, the information that we're talking about isn't black and white information. It's probabilistic information that often um, won't, you know, we, we don't know how, what those probabilities actually are, but we know that it's not certainties. And the other is that um, much of what we're talking about now as medicine gets more and more sophisticated is beyond even other physicians working in different disciplines, much less the average patient walking in. So I, I, I don't know to what extent from the radiology end you think about this, but is there, I mean, just because we're giving somebody information does not mean we have really empowered them in a useful way. We may have just given them an opportunity to roll the dice for whatever reason. So. Yeah, I'd like to take a moment just to give you guys a slightly different um, scenario. You know, one scenario we do deal with, and this is a real-life thing, we meant, I mentioned earlier about liver transplantation. And we say that if you have a certain amount of cancer in your liver, that you should get a liver transplant, that you should potentially have this life preserving, life-saving operation. If you have too much cancer, you shouldn't. If you don't have cancer, we have to wait for your liver to fail for you to get to the top of this list. So the criteria, the amount of cancer for determining who is the right candidate to get a liver was defined back in 1994. Imaging has markedly changed since then. We are so much more sensitive, more specific, 
So if we said, well, we have a much, much, much more sensitive test, we can determine more of your cancer. We can see more of it in your liver. And now we don't think you should get a transplant. But take a step back. All of these patients do great. Their outcomes are good. So would denying them a transplant because the imaging has become more sensitive be the right answer? Would that be information that you guys would want to know that would now preclude you from getting a life-saving procedure? But it is more accurate. We do think it's more accurate. But you would be saved and your outcome would be good, even with the additional tumors. So that's just another example of where the information may not be in your best interest to know. Um, so it kind of it's, it's just a little different way of looking at that. As a lawyer, I'd like to know what lawsuits you are aware of that's involved uh, failure to give informed consent. From from a legal point of view, we we generally uh, are for all information being made available to a client or to a patient, and that's why we have strict informed consent laws. So it strikes me as a little odd that that there's a, a if there's any availability to avoid those uh, those laws. So do you know of any lawsuits that have arisen? I'm not aware of any that have arisen from this um, particular kind of scenario that we have presented. Uh, the informed consent is essential, and any patient that we enroll in a prospective study, we're going to get informed consent. Uh, and if we're not going to give them their results, that will, in fact, be in the informed consent, and they'll read that, you know, I will not have access to these test results, and they kind of have to be okay with that. I don't know from the legal perspective if after the fact... Is that truly say, informed consent if they're not aware that what the consequences well, So it gets of, to very yeah. complicated and long discussion. I, I understand that. Yeah, I think the idea of informed consent is a really challenging topic, and whether anyone really ever can give informed consent, I think, is a question. There's, there's another aspect to this that... Um, we have hinted at, which is that there's this risk that the average subject of research and the average patient going in for clinical help um, is not necessarily savvy about statistics or science. So to what extent do you feel that there is a gap that we as a community need to fill that our general population in order to deal with their lives, to deal with their care, need to understand more and we need to do better. To what extent do you feel we're off the mark? In that way? So. That's a tough question. Um, I think it's hard to know. And, and just very, very anecdotally, not scientific at all here, uh, you know, I recently moved from St. Louis. I was working at Washington University for about 10 years in St. Louis to UCSD. Uh, and I think the population in San Diego is very different than the population in St. Louis and Missouri. So um, <laughs> hearing some affirmatives from the crowd. So, you know, it's, it's really challenging. Uh, the population in St. Louis tended to be more impoverished, uh, probably less educated, uh, probably less informed about what's going on in terms of the healthcare system. And, you know, I don't think there are any programs out there to bridge that gap. Uh, would these programs be something that these particular individuals would partake in? I don't know. Uh, I think that there's information out there uh, for those who are interested and who have the resources to get it. Uh, I think it's really hard to reach those without the resources. It's really hard to reach those who um, are relatively potentially disinterested, too. Yeah. yeah, so part of the reason I asked that is because I, I want to now 
flip the question, which is to what extent are, it sounds like you aren't one of those physicians who tends to be in the room with a patient or a research subject even um, deciding what to tell them and how to tell them. But you are providing data that may be part of that conversation. So is it your sense that our medical schools are doing a good enough job training physicians to relay that information that's often complex and really important to people's lives? I would say that we're not doing a good job. Um, I can tell you not so much about the research, but we, um, we recently undertook this endeavor to create patient-level documents. So the report that goes into my chart might be translated into something that could be actually understood uh, rather than containing a bunch of jargon and words that make no sense to someone who doesn't have an MD. Even attempting to um, translate our words into what we think a patient could understand was a very challenging task. Uh, There are patient resource materials out there. Most medical schools, when you go through, you have the patient doctor society course that you take and you learn kind of how to be a person, how to be a human, how not to do an exam, how to do an exam, don't be creepy, you know, all of this stuff you learn. But, but I think the communication piece is really challenging. And the farther along you get in your education, potentially the more distance between you and the patients that you're serving in terms of what you know and what you understand versus what they know and what they understand. So I think that gap only gets worse as you practice longer and potentially your knowledge base increases. Yeah, thanks. So um, I think we're just about out of time. So I think uh, we better at this point thank you for a really interesting talk. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.